0: Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. You know, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad once said, if you want to stay poor or middle class, listen to Susie Orman or Dave Ramsey. And if you want to improve yourself and get a financial education of the rich, listen to Garrett Gunderson. And that's my guest today. Garrett is an amazing guy, a wealth of information. And one of the things he talks about is to invest in yourself and to treat yourself as your greatest asset. And you invest only in things that align with what he refers to as your investor DNA. And that's something we'll talk about today. So what he's saying is you put everything into things you know about and nothing outside of that. And then you go and let go of all the noise that surrounds you when everyone else is telling you you're crazy, because the only way to get wealthy and actually make an impact in the world is to be crazy enough to face the future with confidence when everyone else is cowering with fear. So this is going to be an amazing interview today. You're going to learn a lot. I know Garrett has just an absolute wealth of knowledge. So we're going to get to that interview right after this quick message. So stay tuned. All right, it's my pleasure to welcome Garrett Gunderson to the show. Garrett is an entrepreneur, a financial advocate, and the founder of Wealth Factory. Garrett brings a bunch of energy and excitement to debunking the many widely accepted myths and fabrications that undermine the prosperity and even the joy of millions of people, including investors, professionals, and business owners. You may know him, and he is the New York Times bestselling author of a very well-known book called Killing Sacred Cows, and more recently, What Would the Rockefellers Do?, He's appeared on TV shows including ABC's Good Money, Your World with Neil Cavuto on Fox, and CNBC's Squawk on the Street. His firm was also named to the Inc. 500, which is very impressive. And most importantly, Garrett makes personal finance simple, immediately actionable, and even enjoyable. And with all that, Garrett, welcome to the show. Thanks
1: for having me, Marco. I appreciate it, man.
0: It's an honor to have you on, Garrett. I've been following you for about 10 years since you came out with uh, Killing Sacred Cows back on July 1st of 2008. And a uh, great book. You've got, I think, 10 myths in there that you dispel that are just so widely misunderstood. So yes. congratulations on having such great content and educating the world like, you know, like we love to do.
1: Thanks, man. I kind of feel like that book's a classic from the standpoint of I read it. It's been about a year and a half ago. I did the audio book. And I just wondering, like, as I read it, I'm like, what am I going to think? There's some is really like, I can't believe I knew this back then. Like I thought I was still learning this stuff and it was brand new material and it's stuff I'd shared 10 years ago. So yeah, that book's kind of like Permission to Succeed. It's like, how do you avoid the missteps and the misinformation that help hold people captive, kind of hold them back in their finances. So,
0: Well, let's kind of start off with some general concepts because a lot of people, even though there's a lot of people familiar with who you are and what you talk about, at the same time, there's a lot of people that don't understand some of the terminology and concepts that you do talk about, which are... Very powerful. So, beginning with the basics, as they say, you know, you talk about this thing called economic independence. We as real estate investors talk about financial independence, and I think you've taken a broader scope to that concept. So, what do you mean by economic independence?
1: So, we'll make a distinction. Economic independence is very different than financial freedom. Economic independence is a state where you have enough recurring revenue to cover your basic expenses. So, I'm all about cash flow investing. And when you can create that from your assets the creating that cash flow to cover expenses or even entrepreneurial-based income, which could be income that shows up even if you don't go to an office or open a computer that day. When that comes your basic expenses, you're economically independent. And why that's substantial is now you can truly swing for the fences in everything you do knowing you have that foundation handled. So if someone's married, they typically marry a different money personality than them. So if they're a real estate investor wants to continue to grow. The other person might just be asking for safety and stability and a lot of cash sitting in a bank account doing nothing. And so economic independence kind of brings those two people together a lot of times because you now know that's handled. Now you can really go all out knowing that every active dollar you earn could be reinvested, could go towards growth and could become exponential, where financial freedom is more a state of mind. It's a state where money is no longer the primary reason or excuse why we do or don't do something. So if I broke that down, it really comes into three phases or kind of three measures of worth around money. One is price. That's what people pay and people that only pay attention to price are very transactional, right? That's why retailers will say, Hey, this is on sale. And people will think they save money because they bought something that's not saving money. (laughs) The second thing is cost. Cost is the economic impact. So it's the net effect. So I can have something with a high price and a low cost. Like I get an amazing accountant understands what it means to be a real estate professional for a tax purpose and I have massive amounts of deduction and depreciation, what if they were three times more expensive than any other accountant out there, but they save you a couple hundred thousand dollars. Doesn't matter if it costs you six grand, you still walked away with $194,000 better off. So cost is kind of that impact. And the third piece is value. Value is just your overall feeling of joy, satisfaction, fulfillment on a personal level. And people that are financially free look at value first, cost second, price third. People that are not financially free only almost always look at price and maybe if they're sophisticated, look at the cost, but almost never consider value. So I believe in value-based spending. I believe in economic independence being the foundation of finance and ultimately financial freedom being that choice where we really this kind of opportunity to be creative and we have this opportunity to be at peace and we can truly consider ourselves as successful at that point because when we're financially free, we're not doing things merely in the exchange of time and effort for being paid, we can be more about our vision. We can be more about our quality of life. We can be more about like living a life we truly love.
0: I love that. I love the distinction. I remember about four years ago, I actually did an episode on the difference between price and value. And a lot of people think they're the same thing, but they're really not. No. So no. I love it. So the other thing that you talk about, I've heard you talk in a speech about your investor DNA. What does that mean, like grasping at the concept of an investor DNA? So
1: investor DNA is risk isn't really in the investment, risk is in the investor. So what kind of investor are you? Look, as real estate investors, we know some people could buy a piece of real estate and lose money and we could go in and buy that and make money immediately. Maybe because we know about fractionalized ownership or seller financing or the three rooms that make the biggest difference to get better rents or we have better exit strategy or like there's so many different ways, right? And so investor DNA is discovering who we are as an investor. And there's really four main things that you look at to break it down. One is your core kind of competencies. Where do you have that knowledge? Where do you have that wisdom? Where do you have that insight that would make you a better investor? Like if you know nothing about technology, technology is gonna be a terrible investment for you. If you know nothing about real estate, you're gonna get your butt kicked by other real estate investors, right? So where's the competency? Then we look at the drivers, the things that you go, you just feel driven to do, that you wanna learn about, that you're excited about, that is enticing, and so we take competencies and drivers, and then we add values. Values are what you personally value. And when you break it down, it kind of helps you to decipher this last piece, which is focus. See, wealth is built through focus, not diversification. Diversification is a preservation strategy that for far too many people becomes about neglecting and abdicating responsibility. And it becomes diversification because they spread themselves thin into things that they don't even understand. I like Andrew Carnegie's philosophy. Focus, don't diversify, put all your eggs in one basket and watch it like a hawk. Right. It doesn't mean you just have one piece of real estate, but it might mean that you master one category of real estate before you move to another so that you're not all of a sudden diversified doing things at a mediocre level. You become excellent at something and you discover what your personal investor DNA is so you invest in alignment with that.
0: So in case anyone didn't catch that when you said it twice now, you didn't say diversify, you said diversify with a W. Yeah, just want to make sure that's clear.
1: (laughs) The that's what the masses are involved in, putting their money into retirement plans, mutual funds, and waiting for the long haul, but that neglects cash flow. They don't understand why the companies are making money, when they're making money, what the exit strategy should be. And it becomes this really nebulous thing that 95% of Americans at age 65 are not economically independent. That's according to the U.S. Department of Labor. So we have a ninety five percent failure rate at accumulation. And why I love cash flow, and this is why I think this is profound for real estate investors, is look, the financial institutions that make a lot of money, they completely focus on cash flow. They're not taking money at a bank and putting it in a four hundred one K. They're taking that money and lending it out. They're paying two percent, charging four percent, that's a hundred percent markup. And their entire business is around cash flow. They'll even charge you less interest if you'll pay them back faster, because that's a more powerful cash flow. If you don't have enough collateral, they'll charge you private mortgage insurance if it's a piece of real estate. If you pay for the appraisal to protect them, they'll make sure that you make that down payment. You show your last three years taxes. You have a good credit score. These are all ways they mitigate and manage risk, but their big business is in cash flow, not accumulation. And it doesn't take money to make money because they're not lending their money. They're lending other people's money. Sure. And so the reality is, There's two very different rules to the game. And to rig the game in your favor, it's all around cash flow to have it rigged against you. It's all around accumulation and waiting for 30 years while other people make money on your money. I mean, when you look at the stock market, there's so many people that there's flash trading that's skimming money from people. There's expense ratios that are skimming money from people. There's actual versus average returns, which are two very different things and volatilities taking money from people like people who are not investing in a cash flow sense and haven't created economic independence are putting their future at risk. They're completely predicated upon speculation. And I have this entire philosophy of make money on the buy. Making money on the buy is you find a distressed seller, you find something you know is undervalued and you're buying it. You find ways that you immediately cash flow from day one when you get that. That's more kind of what I look at with investing. And when you add investor DNA, where you're only investing in things that you know. You can actually build a good foundation that means you don't have to have diversification. People that diversify skip too many steps. They don't have enough liquidity. They don't have the right asset protection. They don't do certain basic things. And therefore, they diversify thinking that's enough. But all that's going to do is limit their upside potential and assure them that they are in more things than they know how to understand or control.
0: Yeah, I agree. I had dinner with Robert Kiyosaki one day, and I remember him saying that there are no bad investments, just bad investors. (laughs) Yep. So, And I think that's so true. And so I love your concept of an investor DNA. It makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. As landlords, we tend to be most concerned with getting paid on time. You might also know that thousands of landlords have to deal with the headache of evicting tenants each year. Evicting a tenant can be painful, costing as much as $10,000 in court costs and legal fees and take as long as four weeks to complete. What if there was a trusted way to help prevent the headache of dealing with evicting a tenant? Make the smart move right from the start. SmartMove's online tenant screening solution can help you quickly understand if you're getting a reliable tenant, which can help you avoid potential problems such as non-payment and evictions. Now, for a limited time, listeners of this podcast are invited to try SmartMove tenant screening for 25% off. Here's how SmartMove can help you find your next great tenant. First, make a more informed decision with SmartMove's proprietary credit score. Built specifically for tenant screening, which predicts evictions 15% better than a typical credit score. Second, reduce non-payment risk with SmartMove's Income Insights Report, which enables you to analyze the applicant's income within minutes and determine if additional income verification is needed. And third, get critical information quickly with a full credit report and criminal background and eviction history report. With over 5 million screenings completed, SmartMove can help you make a better leasing decision for your rental properties. If you own a rental property, SmartMove can help you identify the right renter from the start so you can avoid the problems of non-payment and evictions. Don't put yourself at risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, and enter code NORADA25 and O-R-A-D-A 25 at checkout for 25% off your next screening. With TransUnion SmartMove, you'll get great reports, great convenience, and great tenants. One thing I've said many times on this show over the last three, four years is that you can't save your way to wealth. It's just not possible. And then I was listening to you do a talk to a small group of entrepreneurs, and I heard you say the same thing. So I think a lot of people don't realize that you can't save your way to wealth. I'm of the belief that you should save as much as you can as fast as you can and then go broke, meaning deploy that income-producing assets. And I know you have a framework and an infrastructure on how to do that. And that's part of the reason why I have you here today. But as we get to that, maybe talk about how to avoid the restriction of budgeting. Cause you know, saving and budgeting go hand in hand. And I think it's hard to create wealth doing that.
1: Man, I just spoke to a group of high school students, but it was like the top 50 students in the state. And I decided I would address this notion of the millionaire next door. Yeah. And one of them happened to I remember read that. in the book. Right. And the entire thought process is if you pinch pennies hard enough until you get blisters on your fingers that one day, someday you could be a millionaire. But the bottom line is when you die, 16 and a half months later, your heirs have blown that money because they didn't even know that you had it. And it's never part of the topic or conversation. So there's really three ways to live within your means. And the first way is where most people get stuck. And that first way is to reduce and lower expenses. The problem is not all expenses are created equal. Like some expenses are destructive and we should just get rid of those for sure. That would be like vices or bad habits that lead towards debt maybe, right? Other expenses are just lifestyle expenses. We just want to pay cash for those. Those are the things we enjoy in life. Other expenses are protective expenses, which is everything from liability and insurance and asset protection and liquidity. We want to address those. But some expenses are actually productive expenses. You put in a dollar, more than a dollar comes out. Why would we ever want to eliminate or reduce productive expenses? It's a faulty notion that's a reductionist mindset instead of a production mindset. And so that's the first limitation with thinking of living within your means is people think about budgeting and budgeting is constraint. So the two other ways that I advocate to live within your means is number one, to be efficient within your means. The way you can be held efficient is four main eyes. One is the IRS. 93% of people tip the government unnecessarily. And you people in California do more than your fair share of that, so yeah. The second is interest. Structuring your loans properly because you have the right credit, the right collateral, the right cash flow reporting, and the right connections, or you renegotiate interest rates, or you restructure loans, or you reallocate where you have underperforming assets with higher and straight loans that you might pay off. Like These are all ways that you could boost and be more efficient, or even in investments. Are there hidden fees or commissions? Is there a lack of downside protection? There's no reason to forfeit or give up wealth, when the economy changes, what you do it properly? And then the last I is insurance. There's a lot of duplicate coverages, improper structure. So ultimately, the IRS, investments, insurance, and interest, if we find ways to plug those leaks, that could boost 10% or more of our income with zero budgeting. So why go budget if we could just keep a lot more of what we make? And then the third thing that's the game changer is to expand our means. So number one is you could budget. Number two is you could be efficient. Number three is you could expand your means. That's production, that's growth, that's being an investor. And so that's the mindset that's required to be wealthy. Because if you're always in elimination, you're even if you can accumulate a million or $2 million, you're never gonna enjoy it, you're never gonna experience it. And it's the slowest track in getting there, where production is the key. It's adding value, it's reaching people, it's serving others in a way that has magnitude or reach or depth. And once you have that, you have wealth.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I have an issue with the scarcity mindset and the scarcity mentality and trying to create wealth through a scarcity strategy because it's impossible. It just doesn't exist. So the only way to do is expand your means, expand your income, become more valuable, become more productive. And that's really the only way to, to do it. But tied in with everything you just said, it got me thinking about what's at the root of most people's money problems. Is it a scarcity mindset or what really at the root of most people's money problems? Well, one is
1: that they don't understand money right?
0: Okay, education.
1: Yeah. So if we broke it down, like money is the byproduct. And there's two more precious resources that drive all money. One is our mental capital, which is our idea, knowledge, wisdom, tools, insights, strategies, systems, structures, mental capital. The second is relationship capital, people, networks, organizations, mentors, friends, family, customers, subscribers, mental capital times our relationship capital determines our financial capital. So people feel like they've got a money problem. That's only the symptom. The real issue is either their thoughts, thinking, and mindset and perspective, or the people they spend their time with. And so the bridge between mental and relationship capital is business. And that business bridge takes our ideas and improves people's lives. So the more people we can reach with our mental capital, the more money we can make. Or the more deeply we reach those people and impact them, the more money we can make. So the bottom line is dollars follow value, and if you want to create more value, you've got to take insight, knowledge, wisdom, and you've got to apply it to serve and solve problems for other people and deliver that value, and the byproduct will be you end up with more money. So we're one relationship or one idea from a new level of prosperity, and if we look at any issue we have, if we, have a, we can write a check and make it go away, it wasn't a money problem. But if you can't, it's really the thinking or the people, and that's what it comes down to in people's lives is the thoughts or the people they spend time with.
0: Yeah, beautifully said. And that's, I think, at the heart of what a lot of entrepreneurs think and do and believe, maybe not consciously, but unconsciously, because they realize that creating value creates more wealth in their own lives. So the more you give, the more you receive. It's just kind of deeply rooted in that abundance mentality. I love it. You you said it very, very well. So let me shift gears a little bit here. You You mentioned retirement accounts once or twice. And I know I'm kind of in the general topic or theme of growing your money, but A lot of people think that the way to grow their wealth, at least for the future, is to have retirement accounts. And I know you have a big issue with this. (laughs) So general question, like what retirement accounts should people avoid? And this may be a totally loaded question, but how do we improve our existing retirement funds? Because a lot of the people listening to this already have 401k, solo 401k, self-directed IRAs. They're using those funds to invest with us in various different things. And that's all well and fine. But I know you have a lot to say about this. We could probably spend an hour just on this one topic.
1: Yeah. So look, I have zero love for any retirement account. (laughs) If you want to be middle class, use retirement accounts. If you want to be wealthy, you're going to end up with an adverse effect in a retirement account. Your business partner is the government and they're $23 trillion in debt. So you think that they're going to lower taxes in the future? I don't think that they're going to be capable of lowering taxes because of the addiction that they've created. To all these programs and all these payrolls and all that kind of stuff and the way that they raise funds for that is through taxes so they have restrictions on these plans i think the worst plan out there is a defined benefit plan for those that have that then we look at the 401ks the seps the simples the iras i don't care roth or traditional roth is probably better but not ideal and all these retirement plans typically neglect cash flow have government control Um, have limited exit strategy because you have to wait till 59 and a half in most cases, unless you do a 72 T distribution or you come up with a few other offsets, but ultimately as people kind of stay away from being able to access that money. And it's far too distant in the future. And because if you're not getting cash flow, there's a whole bunch of fees associated with it. Government's your partner and they're not a good partner in this. (laughs) Why would you be funding these? Especially if you don't have plenty of liquidity. You're not earning interest instead of paying it because I get some people using self directors to invest in real estate, and that's fine, especially if it's a Roth. My concern is if it's not a Roth, what if you're buying real estate that you're gonna hold longer than a year? You put all real estate into a retirement plan and it takes it away from a capital gain treatment and it moves it to ordinary income. So that's fine if you're doing a fix and flip, that's not so good if you're holding apartment complex for a longer period of time, because now you've gone from long-term capital gains to ordinary income, and you cannot depreciate retirement plan, so you've lost that tax benefit. So those are a couple issues right there. I get that if you're selling properties, you're not paying upon the sale, but you lose the value of maybe doing a 1031, or you lose the value of doing a charitable trust. I think a charitable trust is one of the cool strategies when you have real estate and you're gonna exit, where you can get a partial tax deduction, you pay zero tax on the sale, regardless of how much it's depreciated, and you can take an income for the rest of your life of between 5 and 50%, depending on the underlying assets, because of the charitable trust, you can't do that with a retirement plan. So you start to crush your options. You start to kill your cash flow. You start to fall into a trap where you have a silent business partner that's ruthless and is absolutely going to confiscate your wealth in the future. I mark my entire career and life on that.
0: Yeah. I always think of uh, that famous line from the Star Wars trilogy where they're going after the Death Star and that guy, I forgot his name, the captain, he says, it's a trap, it's a trap. And that's essentially what retirement counts are because you're essentially deferring or trying to defer taxes. And then you're having to spend in order to save, which is really counterproductive because I think it's an opportunity cost that you're missing out on. You could have put those funds into better, more productive use now instead of in the hopes that it'll be worth more down the road where you're going to be taxed an arm and a leg on it.
1: I was employed when I was 19 years old by a financial firm and they, they gave me a 3% match on my 401k. So I was putting in 3% getting a 3% match sure. saying, hey, this is free money. And I felt okay about it because I thought, well, and this is tax deductible. I would say those words. And then one day when I was just looking, I'm like, wait, wait, if I get a tax deduction, why is that money not in my pocket? The money isn't, I didn't pay tax on it, not because it ends up in my pocket. It's stuck inside of the plan. So I can't go access the money to spend or to do something with it unless it's available inside of the plan. So it's just a deferral, not a deduction. So we have all this language of calling something a tax deduction when it's merely pre-tax, Right, when it's merely a deferral. And so I now look at it as if someone's promoting it as a major tax advantage, I consider that lazy and uneducated. Lazy because there's better tax advantages, much, much better tax advantages that are real and not just deferral. Lazy because, yeah, I get that if you don't plan and then you go, hey, April's coming up, what could I have done for last year? You're late. I had a tax meeting this week with my entire tax team. I had this guy, Jeff, that was leading the strategy. I had a tax attorney, Andrew. I had Brett, the CPA. I had my controller, Rosen, and we were brainstorming for an hour. What are all, and by the way, this is way before the end of the year. So we have runway. And now we have the action items of things we're doing before the end of the year, so that we can maximize all the deductions. And I do zero into a retirement plan. I cashed out my retirement plan a long time ago. As a matter of fact, I decided to cash it out and put in a yard. That way, when everybody was bitching that their retirement plans weren't growing, I could let that out all my grass. It was <laughs> growing, and I could feel good about it.
0: That's hilarious. <laughs> Well, I didn't do that. I closed mine 18 years ago, but I didn't invest in a yard. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) So yeah, I cashed
1: it out. I paid the penalty. I looked at the penalty like it's 10% one time. I think all of us that are investing in real estate would take a 10% loan if they only charge 10% the first year and no interest for the rest of the life of the loan. That's cheap money, right? Yeah. Yet when we call it a penalty, I went to Catholic school, man. Penalty meant punishment from the nuns. <laughs> so I was scared of that word. It's brilliant marketing to call it a penalty.
0: That's hilarious. All right. So that begs the question, and something you're an absolute expert on, is, is what are the best ways to create that predictability in growing your wealth? Because obviously we are being lied to and misled, particularly by the mainstream media, that these investments... That I call alternative investments are actually the mainstream investments that we should be looking at. And then we have to diversify within these paper assets across these different markets and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't work for me. I never bought into that. And so how do you create predictability and growing your wealth?
1: So I'm going to break it down into a few things, starting very simple. First thing is we build up plenty of liquidity. The more cash you have on hand, the more power you're going to have when there's an economic downturn, because most of the world's caught up on building net worth. When you're building that worth and neglecting cash flow, you become susceptible to downturns where you might have to liquidate quickly. And that's when you can make money on the buy when you have enough cash. So make sure you've got enough cash. Second is make sure you've got good habits. What I'm gonna say is something you may have heard from George S. Clausen, if you read Richest Man in Babylon, and maybe you even heard from my buddy, David Bach, but I view it completely different. He says pay yourself first, but he's saying put money in a 401k. That's not paying, that's investing. I want you to pay yourself first by taking a percentage of your personal income and setting it in a separate account that is just used for liquidity. Once you have six months liquidity, then you're automatically saving and continue to grow it. But when the right investments come, you choose to deliberately invest. Automatically save, deliberately invest is the mantra. And you invest because you've got purchasing power with cash. I just bought, I would call it like a cabin, but it's maybe more like a family lodge last year. And the only reason I got this property over two other people that were looking to buy it, and I got it for a little bit less. I didn't get a massive discount. It wasn't even double digit off what she was asking for asking price, but it was in high demand. I had cash. I could close in nine days. Right. Everybody else was going to finance. I once lost on a $2.2 million property that I knew would sell for 1.5. And it really was, it really, I knew would be worth 2.2 because it had been, but there was just a, the lending criteria during this time it was like 2012 it was just loosening up again i knew it would be going for 1.5 i got them down to 1.6 and then someone came in as a cash buyer at 1.5 and they property and i missed out because i was financing so i want people to pay themselves first build liquidity and then the real way that you're going to build exponential wealth is investing in a business and being a business owner so whether that business is real estate treat it like a business not like a side hobby Become extraordinary at what you do in that and focus on cash flow first. Once you achieve economic independence, you have a 10 times advantage over everyone else that has to take their income to live off of it. When you don't, then everybody else is trying to save 10% and earn 10%. You're saving 100% and focusing on creating even more cash flow. And the more cash flow you get, the more substantial wealth that you can build. And by the way, in business, the more cash flow that doesn't require you every day, it builds more equity. So don't focus on equity and don't focus on net worth. Focus on cash flow first and let equity and net worth follow. And you're going to be 10 times advantage over everyone else that's just in this slow, dogmatic, compound interest, accumulation retirement game that has been an absolute failure that people somehow are still abiding by.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I'm listening to what you said, and you could have replaced the word business with real estate and everything you just said. And it's exactly what I say all the time is to focus on cash flow. Cash flow is kink. If you have that sustainability in your portfolio, your equity and net worth will grow over time.
1: I just feel like if you're going to do real estate, go all in, like be turn it into a business. Yeah. A business of acquiring and being a real estate investor so you could build your expertise so that you could totally get dialed in. And that's where you get a competitive advantage. And what I like about, there's things I like and dislike about real estate. What I like about it is any insider advantage you have is legal in stock market, it's illegal, right? <laughs> so, but you get rewarded for insider information in real estate. Right. You get punished for it in the stock market. You've got the potential for equity and growth. You've got cash flow, and you've also got tax advantages. So you've got this triplicate kind of structure there. And if you're spending more than 750 hours a year on it, you get even more tax boost and benefit by being designated real estate professional for tax purposes, which is one of the biggest loopholes and advantages that are out there. So I say, treat it like a business and get really, really good at something. And then once you master it, you can move into something else within that realm. But you're trying to be great at fix and flip at the same time rental, residential rentals and commercial, like that's gonna be a little bit overwhelming. But if you get dialed in on one, build infrastructure and capability, then you can dial in on another. That's different than diversification. That's actually just intelligence of building more cash streams. But when people get diversified, is when they go buy one thing and they immediately shift to another strategy, and immediately to another strategy, and these are all brand new strategies for them. Like I was on uh, Kiyosaki's podcast, and he says he doesn't really recommend real estate anymore. I said, "Why?" He goes, "Because I recommend it, and someone goes and buys stupid ideas and stupid properties, and they don't know, know anything about it." Right. What he agreeing with is investor DNA, essentially, right? Like, it's got to be your investor DNA, you've got to treat it like a business. And look, I early on in my life didn't treat real estate as a business. And I made too much money early on through luck because of timing. And then I found out there was a difference between all boats rising with the tide. And then you finding who's swimming naked when the tide rolls back as Warren Buffett said, And I was swimming naked being over leveraged and not focused enough on cash flow and with bad business partners. So I had a little bit of turmoil in real estate for a while, but that came about because my first several deals, I made huge returns. I put in 25 grand to escrow, got back 50 grand in the first three months. I put no money down on a property, walked away with 90 grand when it sold a year later. When I was in my early twenties and I had that arrogance and I wasn't treating it like a business and I was getting involved in way too many different deals. A golf course deal where they were building properties, development with the four Like I just got spread thin, and if I would have just said, hey, why don't I just focus on getting an amazing crew for fix and flips? Or why don't I just focus on fourplex or smaller with real estate that's cash flowing from day one? Or I'm just going to focus on real, on commercial with this type of cap rate. Get so good at one of those and then you can build more infrastructure, more capability and delegate and hire so that you have the ability to stay with as a visionary.
0: Yeah, I agree. So Let's kind of wrap up with a little bit on taxes and how to save taxes, because I know you talk about insurance structures and comprehensive financial plans to help alleviate that. You and I have so much content we could talk about. We could go on for hours and hours or days, and so maybe we just need to bring you back at a later date to continue where we leave off here today. But I know what you do and what you offer is going to be super helpful for a lot of the people listening here today. So let's talk about taxes, because we talked about growing your wealth, and now let's talk for a few minutes about protecting it. What advice do you have, if any, on the best ways to save on taxes? I heard you one time talk about either a three- or five-part framework for saving taxes. I don't know exactly what that's all about, but maybe you can just kind of touch upon it at a 30,000-foot level.
1: Yeah. Two things to avoid is deferral and spending. It never makes sense to spend a dollar to save 37 cents right there's a lot of people that buy stuff they don't want or need in the name of saving tax and so they're burning money they're losing money <laughs> yeah. deferring taxes taxes could go up because from 1944 to 1981 the tax bracket was above 50% so right now we're at 37% so you might be deferring into a higher tax bracket if you're not right. careful so here's a three part framework it's 3 by 3 by 3 and then there's two other pieces the 3 by 3 by 3 is there's three main people you need on your financial team you need someone that does bookkeeping and data, or that's a controller or a CFO. You need someone that does tax strategy, which might be a CPA, but not all CPAs are tax strategists. And then you want an attorney. That might be a corporate attorney when you start out, it might be a tax attorney as you go on. Some people only think of tax attorneys as someone to battle like the IRS after the fact, but when you use them proactively, they're extraordinarily valuable. Now, I guess in real estate, you might need a fourth person on your team and that's an engineer if you're doing commercial property for cost segregation and accelerated depreciation. Okay, now every three months, meet with this tax team. Get on the phone with them every three months and brainstorm. Just come up with ideas. Are there things you could do to save on tax? And they could tell you yes or no. And then you could say, are there any other circumstances where that could be a yes? And then every three years, look back and have a different set of eyes on your taxes to see if something was missed because you can amend returns. We're constantly looking at brainstorming around that. The second bucket of the three-part framework is you want to maximize your deductions. The way you maximize your deductions is number one, you have a business. Number two, you ask every expense you have, how does it relate to your business? So my tax team meeting this week was, I just bought a Maverick 1000 X3 Turbo Can-Am. It's like a go-kart. And I said, look, this is going to be up at one of the offices where I host my podcast that I'm launching. I'm like, if I have clients that are using it, guests that are using it, what percentage could we write off? We came to the conclusion 50%, right? But then I'm like, hey, I also have a truck and a car I bought this year. We came to the conclusion 75% on one, 80% on the other. That's what we're going to write off and feel comfortable with. That was part of those conversations. Why? Because I just documented the expenses and asked how they relate to the business. And then we came up with that assessment. So you want to maximize deductions and that's what that call is going to be helpful with and then the third thing is where the game changer is reclassification reclassification mostly comes from an attorney it's four main categories number one how do you turn active income into passive real estate is beautiful for that because active income has self-employment tax by Cafuta, medicaid it's up to 15.3 percent higher tax on active versus passive income the second thing is how do you turn ordinary income into capital gains once again we have a champion with real estate here because your appreciation with the real estate is a capital gain. If you've held it for longer than a year, you're at a capital gains rate instead of ordinary income, therefore saving tax. Number three, tax-free. Look, charitable trust could be a thing with real estate to do tax-free type of sale. And so there's advantages there. Number four is arbitrage. So arbitrage means you spend a dollar, you get more than a dollar back. I'll give two examples, even though both of these, you have to do them right. One is a conservation easement. If you own a piece of land that you never want to develop, you can donate the development rights. If it's in a great place with high value for that development, you might be able to get massive tax deductions, maybe even more than what you spend on the property. Had a guy that had property in West Texas, had a lot of sand on it. We got it evaluated that if it was fracked and they were to do fracking there, what it would it be worth? But he didn't want to do it. He just donated that massive deductions. We had someone else in Florida, had land that had those turtles that dig, was able to do a conservation easement on that, get a huge tax deduction. Another thing is a historical easement. If you ever find a historical easement in real estate, it could be magic because you can actually rent the building out. You can just never tear it down. You have to preserve the historical facade. You get a major tax deduction for donating the facade while you keep the real estate. These are just a couple examples of many tax arbitrage ideas. So reclassify is how you structure your income. Deductions is what you can write off, which everyone needs to learn about the Augusta rule. You don't know there's 14 days of major tax deductions for you there. And then in the first category, it was building the right team, proactively communicating with them and retroactively looking back every three years. That's the very quick, dirty, fast tax strategy.
0: I love it. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You're a wealth of knowledge, and hence the reason you probably called your company The Wealth Factory, right? (laughs) Maybe there's other reasons.
1: (laughs) It's one of the few things I didn't name. That actually wasn't my idea. Someone else came up with Wealth Factory name. No kidding. I love it. I think it's a great
0: name. Very catchy. Cool. Well, Garrett, listen, this has been extremely valuable. I know that you've certainly enlightened and helped a lot of people listening to this to kind of set their bearings straight, and probably you'll hear from a number of them. So share with our listeners how they can find you and or get more information about what you are and what you offer and what you do.
1: Yeah, you go to WealthFactory.com forward slash podcast if you want to check things out online. And there's some great resources. If you want a copy of What Would the Rockfellers Do?, you can text 801-503-9667 and then put WWRD in the subject line, 801-503-9667, 801-503-9667, WWRD in the subject line, will contributed download of the book. That's on me. If you want a physical copy, I'll cover the investment of the book. You cover the investment of the shipping and handling, which is a single digit amount. It's a pretty small amount.
0: I'll put all that in the show notes so people will have the links and everything and the phone numbers. Cool. All right. Well, Garrett, unless you have anything else to add, I really appreciate you taking the time and coming on today.
1: No, thanks for having me. It It was a lot of fun and I appreciate you knowing so much and asking great questions and following the work for 10 years. It means a lot.
0: Well, keep up the great work. I appreciate it. I will. All right. Thank you. So there you have it. Amazing, amazing interview and great advice from Garrett. So just in wrapping up here, remember, download your free report, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing, available at PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. Get your free strategy session with my team if you are thinking about real estate investing or taking your real estate investing to another level to grow your portfolio and increase your cash flow, something we talked about today with Garrett in great detail. If you have a question about real estate investing, fire that over to me. Click Ask Marco at the top of the homepage at PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. Remember to subscribe, help us spread the word, share the show with other like-minded individuals. So visit us on iTunes, leave us a rating review. You could also do that on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and pretty much everywhere else. So again, thanks for listening and we will see you all on our next episode.